welcome to Score Module, the official RoboFungus podcast. I'm your host, Zach Leach, and this is episode four, Fantasy, the first step forward. All right, sitting here today with Justin Call, author of the Silent God series, here to talk about his approach to beginnings. Justin, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Zachary? Or Zach, what do you prefer? Or RoboFungus? Oh. <laughs> um, I prefer Zach. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, getting over a cold and the holidays are kicking my butt. It's kicking us all. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of dive into to talking about beginnings. Um, cause I, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's probably the most, if not one, if not one of the most important parts of any narrative, whether it's verbal theater, literary, like the, the beginning of a story is the most important part. It's the part that people will remember the most as one of the key moments, you know, and it sets the stage for everything. So I just wanted to dive into and kind of hear like when you're, when you're getting going, how do you process, how do you start your, your works? Well, I guess it would uh, vary depending on whether we're talking about the books themselves or the series. Um, um, let's, let's start at a series level and then scale it down. Cause I think that'll, I think that's the most helpful as well. Um, my series, the silent gods, which is the first of three series that I have planned. So the super series is what I call lore of Luquatra and is 12 books. And the first chunk of that, the first four books is the silent gods. And the series itself deals with the protagonist, Anna of Debreath, who is particularly in the first four books, um, the, the prophesied hero, chosen one who's supposed to defeat the great evil that's threatening the world, etc. But the, the promise of my premise is that the hero discovers they are, in fact, the reincarnated Dark Lord, which is not a spoiler because it's on the, uh, the back of my books. It's in the cover flaps. I tell everybody up front. And most of the time, people forget that, and then they start reading the books. And then they get to gradually see the hero turn into that person, or they remember that, and then they hold me accountable for it in the first book because he doesn't turn into the Dark Lord in book one because beginnings are important. And if you're going to have a character who, like I do, I plan to have him be a Dark Lord that we get to um, observe, witness, experience for 12 books, I have three distinct arcs for him to explore. And this first one is um, becoming a dark Lord. So I wanted, um, I knew of all the times that I've seen dark Lords in, in any other kind of series. And I've often wanted to dive more into the beginnings of how that character came to be because I find um, origin stories be very exciting, but more especially when they're dealing with um, the villains and since my series primarily deals with that concept, I get to both wrestle with a protagonist who is the quote unquote hero as well as the quote unquote villain. But you get to see that evolution across the uh, first four books as well as the all 12 books. So um, planning that out took a lot of time. Um, in fact, it took me 15 years to write the first book because I was doing world building for the entire series while writing the first book. And I wanted to get it right, and I did not want to um, 
I saw a lot of pitfalls, one of them being if the character was too evil in the beginning, it would be difficult to empathize with them, and it would be much like, well, most villain stories that you read, where you don't really get to see them evolve or change. I think one of the few exceptions to that is maybe in Star Wars when you're reading about Anakin Skywalker, and you get to see him evolve. But even then, um, I feel like there's a big jump between like the movies, um, Phantom Menace versus the Clone Wars. He's a lot darker in the Clone Wars than he, and he's not really dark at all in Phantom Menace. And so you don't really get to see that transition as much. You you do a little bit in Clone Wars, and you do a, a lot more in in the next movie, the third movie. But um, again, uh, it's not totally satisfying in my opinion. Same thing happens with. Um, well, so many books. Um, Brandon Sanderson actually had a similar idea that he wanted to explore with his, um, with his, I think it's a Dark One comic, where he wanted to basically show almost the same premise, uh, a hero becoming a villain and what, what it would be like for them. But again, he tried to do it all in one go. And I don't think you can address that appropriately. There's just one. not enough space. There's not. It's like, yeah. it's like when a director takes a fantasy novel and is like, oh, I can write a movie with this. And it's like, no, you can write an HBO series with this, but a fantasy novel is, it's big. It's, it's rich and layered and complex. And there's a lot of char- characters and arcs and, and pieces and world building. And you can't capture all of that in a movie, which is why there's no. so many bad fantasy movies. But yeah. The better the better ones are series. Yeah, I uh, I definitely agree there because um, yeah, and you know there's a there's a saying, uh, and I can't remember where the quote comes from, but it's every villain is the hero of his own story. Correct. And it's one of those things where like you have to just take into perspective that from their side they're doing exactly what they're supposed to. They don't get up in the morning and go, "I'm the bad guy." It's nope. I'm going to make sure my civilization survives or I'm going to make sure I survive or, you know, and they're, they're a product of their, they're a product of their environment and they're a product of their um, experience. Yeah. Yeah. I would a hundred percent agree. And that's kind of the, the whole premise for the series is that I want care. I want the readers to see um, somebody who is likable and empathetic and good, who is a product of their environment and experiences. And ideally, by the time they follow that character through their heroic journey, they are able to empath- not just empathize, but also, um, well, maybe not justify, but also empathize with the, uh, the villain. Well, they could say, I wouldn't do that if I were them. But then by the time they get to that part of the book, they say, oh, no, I see why they why I would do that, why they would do that. That actually makes sense. Okay, I I can forgive them, or oh, I would do the exact same thing, or I would do worse than that. Um, and I think that I think that's helpful for a lot of us to see that perspective because we often don't get to see that level of detail and that level of empathy when it comes to villains and dark lords and other people who are supposedly the bad guys. But as you said the villains are the heroes of their own story. So Mm -hmm. I took that to um, the next level really and said, all right, I'm writing this. I know they're the dark Lord, but I'm writing this as if they are the hero. 
And you get that 100% in book one. And mm-hmm. it's not until book two that you really start to say, oh, this is not your traditional hero. This is a character who is flawed and is making some non-standard choices, but also you can't really feel bad about them. You, you, you kind of understand yeah. why, where they're going, and, and it's, it's justifiable. It's empathetic. And you know, when you're in the moment and you're experiencing that part as you're listening or reading to that part in the story, you, and you've done a great job of it, but it's, it's important that you can go, okay, yeah, I see why they did that. Instead of having to stop and ponder on it, you're like, I get it. Yeah. Like it, it's that I get it moment is so important. Um, in, in a lot of narratives because even in, even in, um, fantasy or even in fantasy stories, you know, and this is without a doubt fantasy magic can't just solve everything. No. Cause if you, if you have magic solve absolutely everything, then there's no, there's no struggle. Where's the, where's the strife? Where's the trial? Where, why is there hunger in the world? Why is there injustice? Like if magic is the magic tool, it can't be a blanket magic tool, you know? And so that's where you need those rules, those restrictions, things like that. And, and it's in moments like that too, like where, you have your character developing his personal style is how I'll put it, I guess. Um, it's sort like that. Those moments are sort of the culmination where everything from like the beginning of book one and then little bits and pieces here and there all finally start to click together and you start to get a shape of what he's going to be. Yes. And at, at the end of book two, that is yeah. only- that that you know when you're in the beginning of book one you wouldn't have suspected it no at the end of book one you're like that's kind of weird i wonder where this is going and then start of book two you're like there's some hints here and then it realizes fully by the end yes yes exactly and there will be even more of that in book three and four so by the time you get all the way through those first four books it all clicks together very neatly and that's a lot of fun to plan that far out in advance. And then of course I've got two other arcs that I have foreshadowed and planned for as part of the super series, mm-hmm. which are still being foreshadowed and planned for in the first um, four books. So there's a lot of layers there. There's a lot of, I've told people this story has a lot of legs and it does, <laughs> but um, you know, that we're talking about beginnings. This, this is the beginning of the beginning. So um, the first four books are about the transition from hero to dark Lord and, and also keeping people invested in that journey because if they go too dark too quick, you're not going to empathize with that character. And if they, they don't go dark enough, you're not getting what was promised. Yeah. They've got to be flawed. So there's a lot of things about Anna that is kind of frankly annoying. Um, he's kind of a whiner. He's, he's got some privileges that um, he does. He doesn't acknowledge. Um, he's, he's got some rose colored lenses for a large part of the book. And, um, but again, he grows out of a lot of those things and you know why he grows out because of the experiences he has, but also it shows you how he is going to get to that place where he is the dark Lord. And you will understand mm-hmm. precisely why both because of his flaws and the solutions that he's created for the problems that he's faced in his life and yeah. the lessons he's learned along the way. So so there's all of that. Um, and I had to plan for that thinking I've got to, 
show a 17 year old protagonist that is an adult because this is an adult fantasy series and he's not going to be 17 forever. And yet at the same time, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm catering to two audiences. So it's crossover fiction, young adult fiction, adult fiction, dark epic fantasy, but it couldn't be too dark to start with because the heroes. And you also it. dabble in progression fantasy a little bit with this series too. Yes. Yes. So it's, it's one of those things, that, and that's something I love about the fantasy genre is that you can mix across subgenres like that. Totally. Um, but like with the with the story of Anna, I think you started it in exactly the right spot by putting him at seventeen because everybody was seventeen once. Yeah. And the then Roman of you know the the hero becoming an adult, growing up, discovering themselves. That's all yep. of us. And, you know, I think that's that's actually a really interesting quote, and I think it's also uh, a little bit funny, the hero becoming an adult, because you go from, yeah, I'm the best, everything's great, everything's awesome, as the hero, and then you grow up, and you're just the adult. Yeah. And you find yeah. out that you're not so special in the world, and then you have to, and then it's, you know, especially in, in uh, any narrative, it's then... A matter of the protagonist carving but, out you know as i was saying the the series if we're if we're looking at the beginnings that is a rough start for anybody attempting to write a fantasy series because if you are writing a hero who becomes a villain people who like the hero at the beginning are going to be disappointed when they turn into a villain and if you tell them it is a villain they're going to be disappointed when it's not when you start the series it's inevitable that people will be disappointed and it's impossible to market that without disappointing someone but mm. I stand by the progression that I've chosen for the series. And I fully believe that when you know the first four books are out, not to mention eight and 12, um, they'll all hold together and support one another so that when you long for that nostalgia of, gosh, how did our hero get to this point? You can go back and read the first couple books and really, really enjoy all of the things that slowly built up the accretion of experience that's something you really look forward to with really good fantasy novels is going back and and seeing all of the little pieces that led up to all of the great stuff yeah and um it's one of those things because i'm i'm a big rereader i i will go back in and i'll reread or i'll re-listen to the same series a dozen times sometimes back to back sometimes back to back um well, the the uh, the Silent God series, I've listened to it at least twice. Wow. Um, I have other series that I've listened to seven or eight times here in recent memory. But I really enjoy going back after I finish it and then trying to see what I missed. Yes. Like details that were included that I just didn't catch on to before. And there's almost always something there is. that I didn't catch on to, you know. I'll have to ask you after the phone call which, which things yeah. you've on and which things you haven't. <laughs> Oh, there's probably quite a bit that I haven't because, like I said, it's only been like two. But um, but that's the, the series Overlook. Do you want me to dive into the book, the first book then, and talk more specifically about that one? Yes, if we could. That was uh, yeah. kind of where I was trying to think of a good segue into that. Yeah. But yeah, if we could if we could dive into sort of like how you started, like the beginnings, like when you were approaching the beginnings of your of the first book and you were going through like, okay – did you – because it sounds like you plan a lot of your writing process. Is that correct? 100%. Yep, definitely. Okay. So um, did you have like clear targeted goals that you needed to – like, okay, I need I need him to have X revelation. 
I need him to have B capability and I need him to have, you know, Q uh, motivation <laughs> at this time within this timeline. Did you have a, like that plan set out or was it more of like, okay, we can step by step this? Um, I would say that, gosh, there's so many pieces to writing a story and the way that I do it is unique, I think, compared to most people simply because I really like outlining. I really like seeing how all the pieces fit together. Kind of like if you're designing a computer chip, there are many layers to that computer chip or, or if you're looking at, um, if you've, if you've ever seen the old overhead projectors they used to use in school, the different transparencies mm -hmm. overlay on top of each other to create a new image and see all the layers of like oh, the human body, for example. You can remove the skin, then you remove the muscles, then you remove the nerves, then you remove the bones. And you get to see all of those pieces. And I feel like a story is a lot like that because you can have the, the plot, but the plot does not work without characters and you can develop the characters but they're not going to be realistic without having certain flaws and certain needs and certain wants that are in conflict with each other and and all of that needs to take place within the cosmology of the world and the magic system it all has to be coherent and cohesive and it can be daunting i think for a lot of people when you don't know all the pieces and you're just kind of jumping in but at the same time if you don't know all the pieces it's probably less daunting because you're just jumping in. And so you don't know what you're going to miss. Um, and I think in my case, I, I've kept a wide perspective the entire time as I've been writing because I've been wanting to write something like this for a while. So I've been adding all of those layers on planning for all of those things, expecting pieces that would come out, you know, eight, 10, 12 books in the future. I, planned for immediately from the very beginning and so i had to certain pieces for example like the the epigraphs that i include at the beginning of parts one two three etc there are um scriptural literary artifacts that refer to um the age of the gods or the age of kings or, or various you know things events that happened thousands of years ago and i've had those things in mind um and I know how they all end and I know who the major characters are in all of those events. And I get to pull from those when telling my story, but I only tell the pieces that are relevant to what's going on in the current book so that you gradually get the whole tapestry of what is happening and who are these people and why is this happening? Mm -hmm. Is this person actually evil or are they good? Or um, who, sh who can I trust? Which, which histories are reliable, and which aren't? There's so many questions yeah. that can be asked, but it has to be done very slowly. Otherwise, it can be overwhelming, like the magic system. There's almost nothing about the magic system in book one, in my opinion. But readers who read book one said, wow, there's so much magic in here. And I thought, oh, honey, this is the tip of the iceberg. Wait till book two. <laughs> then book two literally inundates you with all of the magic and all of the world building. Yeah, no, it's definitely... Um... It was definitely interesting to see because like, it's just, it's, um, how do I say this? It's not a different approach to magic in book two versus book one, as much as it's a, a difference in prevalence, I guess. Yes. Um, because, and I'm, I, I don't think I'm spoiling it much for people at this point by saying that, um, the magic from book two 
is still in book one, just much subtler. Yes. Mostly in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, It has its place and it follows the same logic, but you don't need to really understand how the magic works in order to enjoy book one. But book two is largely about growing pains and part of those growing pains for Aniv involve him learning about magic and trying to figure out what makes his magic unique and figuring out how he can control his magic. And that requires him and the reader to learn a lot more about the magic system. And consequently, um, it influences more of the plot devices. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I was about to start going on about one specific scene from the first book, but that would be a bad idea right now. <laughs> I don't think it would be that much of a spoiler, right? It's just uh, wh- which part of the book? First third? Last third? Uh, um, it's – was it the first one or was it the second? It's um, first time he's down in the uh, the secret vault. Yeah, so that would be the end of book one. Yeah, so that's where I'm just like he – No, go for it. Um, Like when he gets down there and he's seeing all these artifacts and all this other stuff and then there's – the massive pool of Aquamera. Uh, yeah. Liquid magic. Yeah. Quite the most, probably the most valuable substance there is in that region. Yeah. In that universe. Yeah. I, well, and see, that's where I was, I didn't want to presume cause I wasn't sure how far out you were going to go if there was something more valuable later on, but no, that's it. Wow. So yeah, they're, they're sitting on just an enormous stockpile of it. Yeah. And He's like, wow, this is cool. And then it's just like, I I had the feeling that there was that that childlike sense of wonder at wanting to go in and like stick your hand in it. Sure. And I felt like part of me was just like, I wonder if that's just me projecting on the character or if that's more how his he would be. Yeah. How Anif would be. Because he does he does tend to um get into things. Yeah. Which I mean, given his upbringing, might not be the worst. <laughs> for him, but yeah, he has a mind of his own. He he doesn't uh, take counsel from others too um, too quickly, but he does take counsel from others. He just doesn't listen to it all the yeah. time. Yeah, he he takes pieces that work for him. Yeah, yes, he does. <laughs> so um, so back on track a little bit here. Um, so we kind of went into the first book, and then when you're go- and we started talking about going into the second book there where you're all of a sudden you're getting inundated with all this magic, right? Yep. Um, there's something else that we see right there early on in book two that um, I feel like you don't see a whole lot. And that's the separation of the friend group, you know, and in fantasy, it's a very, very commonly used trope and there's nothing wrong with it that sure. there's a group of two or three friends and that's the main posse. And then the main, the, the protagonist is part of that, maybe even central to it. But we start to see that 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 dynamic getting pulled apart slowly in the beginning of book two a little bit. And it happens early enough on that I'm not worried about spoiling it for anybody. But um, it's just it's something that you don't see happening a lot. And I was wondering kind of where you got the idea for that to happen. Was it because you wanted to shape him towards start shaping him more towards that Dark Lord path or was it something else? Well, I would say there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, every character in the book, I have a character arc planned for them, and they've all started 
opposite of where I hope them to land. Not completely opposite. They'll always be, you know, there's always a synthesis of who they were at the beginning with who they end up being. But I like having long, broad character arcs for those people. And so I've had those in mind for a while. And even though they're secondary characters, I really wanted to show people um, they're not, they they are a bit two dimensional in book one because we only really see see things from Anna's perspective. But then in book two, we get multiple points of view and that really adds depth to those characters, particularly as they begin to grow and evolve and change. And it's difficult for them to evolve when they are part of a group because inevitably they will rely on previous archetypes of the people around them. Um, they will adopt certain behaviors. In fact, uh, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but Theron says something similar about this to, uh, to Titus towards the end of book two. And Theron and Titus being two of uh, Anna's friends and companions, they aren't very strong or dominant characters in book one by any means. And mm-hmm. they evolve throughout book two to where at the end of book two, you can actually see them being potential heroes. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think I was inspired a lot by um, Spook in the Mistborn series. By okay. Because mm-hmm. you, you think about how Spook is a very um, tertiary character in book one, not very interesting. Book two, he evolves a bit. He's useful to the group. But in book three, he becomes, you know, the savior of the flames uh, or, or he, he's just like this, the superhero basically who's occupying yeah, he, just as much space as the main, as the main protagonist. And I really, really liked that evolution and wanted to see all of my characters experience something like that, whether they're good or bad characters. I want them all to have arcs that are that satisfying. So yeah. I've, I've worked on that. And, and that's what Theron says to Titus. At one point, he says, um, I didn't want to go on this mission. I didn't want to do this thing that was altruistic, but I felt like I had to because... Um, Anav didn't. I expected Anav to do it because he always does, but he chose not to this time. And I thought, well, who else is going to do it? So they have to step up and become heroic in their own way, which of course, everything's multifaceted. And in the case of Theron, for example, he still, he starts book one as being kind of a selfish um, friend and he still is to a large extent, but he is evolving. So there are the facets of his character um, multiply. Yeah, it's um. Well, and then there's, so there's Theron, and then um. Oh, who's the other friend? Titus. Titus. Yes. Sorry, I'm. To- I totally blanked on his name. Titus starts off his character very timid. Oh, if yeah. I remember correctly. He's kind, timid, sweet, passive. He's the youngest of the group. He he. Uh... Book two is where we first is where we first start seeing his little like him chipping away at that block. Uh, I, I, you know that block above him and um he starts to finally you know develop and stand up for himself and it's really cool to be able to see that progression in the characters where it's like okay especially yeah, given that you started them at, you know 17 18 years old and they're yep. coming into young adulthood now because that's exactly what happens in real life is nice. you start out and you are preconditioned to living a certain way to behaving a certain way and then all of a sudden you have agency and you have freedom and you can carve a name for yourself. And so now you've got to step out and branch out and develop your own character. Yep. And yep. it's really cool to see that happening in the narrative sense too. 
Yeah, it's a common theme. I mean, uh, Finn, who's primarily a bully in book one, he says the same thing in book two, I think in the early part of book two, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, when he was at the academy, he kind of felt like he had to play the part of a bully because that's the role that he had there. There was no other real option in terms of like how to survive at the Academy. But once the Academy, the the environment of the Academy, once they've transitioned from that and moved on to the, the city, that it's, he has to make a choice. Do I want to continue to be the bully? Do I want to continue to be a, a leader? Do I want to be, start off on my own? Do I want to follow someone? He has to make all these choices that he did not have to make before. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's a pretty common theme too. Like, in, in real life, and I've had many friends that tell me this, and I've felt it myself, but like when you're in high school, you're just a collection of all your friends because they influence so heavily on, on, on the majority of people. Not everybody, but the majority of people. You're a collection of their opinions, tastes, things like that, because, you know, you're still developing your own personal tastes. Sure, yeah. And, and it's, you know, later on in adulthood that you that you develop uh, that agency for yourself. Oh, and the, and the, um, that same scene you were just talking about, you really start to see where, you know, the, the kids who were raised in the environment that they were, um, the Academy of Chambaloo. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say, uh, dangerous cult, but yes, the <laughs> cult of the Academy of Chambaloo. Yeah. A shelter environment that um, prevents them from being exposed to the rest of the world. While going out and stealing magical artifacts. Yeah. Um, which, that's not even much of a spoiler. That's like the first three pages. Yeah, you realize that. <laughs> um, but like the kids who are raised in that environment and like you go through the whole story and you're seeing the trials that they undergo and you're just like, something's fishy here. Like they have real heavy cult vibes in the beginning like right off the bat sure and then as it continues on it's just like yeah no i i think i was right in the first place but something else is going on here too and something else and so and it you know and it gets to a point where you're just like okay things are starting to click together and yeah. then when they get to that scene in the um uh in the ash quarter which there are several of those so i don't feel like i'm being overly specific but where the bully character sorry what was his name again then yeah. You and I. Finn. Yeah. Yeah. But you finally get to the Ash Quarter and Finn um, gets to go off on his own. And you first, and that's the first time you get to see that while these other kids that we've been focusing on may have some form of magic on their own, Finn is just really good at hurting people. Yeah. Because of the training that they've received, you know, and him in particular as well, just because he's, um, has that advantage in his personality, things like that. Like to see, to see that from other characters as well, because it's in the first book, Finn almost seems like uh, not a throwaway character, but he seems more like more of a character development tool. And then, and then in the second part, you know, and later on towards the, fir- towards the end of the first book and then into the second book, you start seeing like, Oh no, he's an actual character. Like he's not just plot development. You yeah, know. he's not just a cardboard cutout. He's not just a straw man or a an idiot, a bully. He is a person who has feelings and thoughts and history and mm-hmm. and you don't know that initially because all we're getting is Anna's perspective. And then over time, we get 
more and more. Same thing happens with my June. She's a very, uh, she's a very divisive character, uh, uh, or polarizing character. Um, a lot of people hate her for good reason in book one. And many of those people still hate her in book two, but then I've noticed probably an equal number say that she's like their favorite. It's been very interesting watching that happen. See, I have, I went through a whole range of emotions with her. Um, it started off as uh, like, yeah, no, nope, don't like her. Nope, don't like that character. Something's fishy, something's fishy. And then it was like, yep, I knew it. Something was fishy. Yeah. And then everything happened to her. And then as she's developed, um, she's grown on me. She's not my favorite character. Yeah. But I don't hate her. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's, and you've done it with every character where it's like, I understand where they're coming from and why they, they're developing this way. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the things that, you know, I, I don't, I know my strengths and weaknesses as an author, and I know that um, I've got plenty of weaknesses, but I will say that when it comes to world building, magic systems, character development, those are my strengths. Those are the areas where I know and I trust myself to naturally find the right rhythm, the right pacing for all of those things. And everything else really is just um, fitting those, fit, fitting themselves around those pieces. <laughs> so, so that's how I've tried to sculpt the series. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I can definitely see your work in that now that you bring it up, like thinking back, it's, there's a lot of instances like that. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's when you get to, you know, your, your final draft and things like that, that you start to see where like, like you and many other authors have gone in and they've taken like, okay, I know what I'm good at. And I know what I'm not. And they managed to conceal what they're not good at, or they managed <laughs> to just not use it. Yeah. And it, you don't feel a lack for it whatsoever. Like if you had never, if you had, not, if you hadn't mentioned it, not a single thing would have ever come to mind about it. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of those areas too, I think that are quote unquote weaknesses. They're not necessarily um, actual weaknesses. They're just not uh, strengths. Like, like, um, mm -hmm. like Brandon Sanderson has some terrific um, twists at the end of his books. And, and they even have a name for, it. I think the Sander Lanch of like discovering. Yep the actual story behind the story. And, and I've always been kind of envious of that. Um, but at the same time, he has his own weaker areas that I don't feel I have. Um, but that's mm -hmm. an area where I don't think I can ever equal um, Sanderson. Same thing with Patrick Rothfuss. He, his, the lyrical quality of his prose is um, amazing. Yeah. But, but then, you know, he's only written the two books so far and, and people have, lambast him for that but but i i will go back to his books and read them frequently because i love the prose and i don't think my prose is that good but at the same time i think it's it's probably at least as good as uh sanderson's workmanlike uh prose and yeah. sometimes <laughs> sometimes it edges uh, a bit closer towards rothfuss and and when it does I, I feel happy about that but um but i wouldn't say those are strengths i would say those are just um just writing and it's the, it's the same thing. And I, th I think I, we, we, I might've just fallen into it too, but you know, there's a pitfall of binaries where, you know, people tend to fall into like good or bad at this. Like, no, there's, it's more of a, you know, if you look at it, each thing is a little slider on the board 
you know, and not everybody's going to be great at everything. I mean, look at, you know, Brandon Sanderson, again, as an example, we've used him a few times, but yeah, yeah. He's probably one of the most famous fantasy authors living he's right perfect. now. He writes a ton of stuff, so it's easy to point to his work. And, and it's good stuff, too. But, yeah, also, like a lot of people have criticized the humor he uses in his books and said, eh, there are times when it, it, it misses. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's true. And I've thought about other authors that I'd like to do use humor rather well in their books and how infrequently it's missed for me and how strong it's been, but I don't try to put that same kind of humor in my books. My humor is not like Sanderson or like David Eddings or, or like anyone else. It's uh, it's its own brand of tongue in cheek, dry humor that occasionally pops its head up. But um, mm-hmm. I sort of gravitate towards those darker things, even though I have a very keen sense of humor in real life. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't always transfer to the books <laughs> but i try no. to put it in there when i can like with uh, sodar's relationship with anna i think a lot of it peeks through yeah that the the dry wit of the of the, the caregiver the, mm-hmm. the elderly caregiver yeah 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 um but that brings me to you know and there's there's part like every author puts a part of themselves into their work you know sure it's not just the sense of humor like we were just talking about or it's not specific things like there's some things that are going to even if you were to try and sit down and do it clerically um there's going to be some part of you that goes into your work and that's true of anybody and i think of writers as artists as much as anybody else is as much as anybody else is an artist and because while you might not be creating a graphical representation of what you were imagining You've created a literary representation of what you're imagining, and that's really not that different. In fact, the literary takes entirely more time. Oh, yeah. um, By leaps and bounds magnitudes more, you know, and it's it's one of those things where it's really cool. That's why I I enjoy doing this podcast, because I get to meet these authors and whose work I really enjoy. And then I get to meet, you know, the person who's who birthed that story, you know? <laughs> um, but it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things that's really cool. And it's, it, it's something too, like, so when I was a kid, I want, I really wanted to write. I like, I wanted to be a writer. That was my thing. Cause I, I read ravenously when I was, when I was much younger. And um, that, that was, that was like the dream. And then every time I've sat down to write something, it just never ends up going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was sitting there thinking about it and I was, I was thinking about it along a lot a couple years ago. And I was just like, I think the issue is I don't know that threshold of, okay, this is me and this is the story. Because if I put down everything that I can imagine onto there, it's going to be nonsensical. It's not going to make any sense. It'll be imbalanced and it won't work. Sure. But being able to take and saying, okay, I can sneak my own humor in here and I can do these things and it's still my work, but it'll still make sense to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the, that, that's the part that I lacked is that. Cause like I, I'm a, I'm a digital artist. I do all the cover art for these podcast episodes. Yeah. Um, and I've done, I've done quite a bit of digital art. I've also done quite a bit of traditional art and I can do that. Not a problem. Doesn't bother me at all. But it's the sitting down and writing part 
like that literary deal. And that's why I say, and I've had people argue it, argue the point with me before, but I do, I consider artists, I consider writers to also be artists because it's still a creative process. Definitely. Absolutely. I think that all of the characters in my books are splinters of me and given the right circumstance or conditioning, I could, I could have been, or could be any of those people. Well, I'm not sure if that says good or bad about me. Um, by the way, but, um, but I think we have to pull from ourselves when we're creating those characters. And at the same time, of course, we're going to graft, um, other things that we've seen, witnessed, experienced other people from our lives. Um, so they don't have to be wholly us, but they do have to be something that we understand and can visualize, comprehend, um, anticipate. Um, sometimes writing is simply creating characters that feel real and then dropping them into a world that feels real and then following them along and seeing what happens. Um, granted I have plans for where I want things to go and how I want things to happen because I know a lot more about the world than my characters do. But at the same time, I can't force them along those tracks because they become their own people. They have their own, agency. And if they don't want to move when I need them to move, then I either need to come up with a better reason for them to move that will force them to do so, or I need to follow them and let them direct the course of the narrative. And, you know, that, that happens as often as not. So. Yeah. It's like, it's like in Dungeons and Dragons. If you, if you're shoehorning your players every step of the way, they're not going to be engaged in what's going on. Yeah. I love role-playing games for that reason. I did role-playing games prior to being an author and have recently gotten back into it. And I plan to write um, an RPG based on the Silent Gods, um, which is one of the reasons why the magic system is so detailed, because I want people to have the ability to play in that world. But um, at the same time, one of my complaints about RPGs is that they often rely too heavily on um, statistics and charts and dice rolling, and you don't get enough role-playing or just storytelling. Yeah. See, and there's just not as much story, and that's what it comes down to. Like, there there might still be a considerable amount of role play that happens, but the amount of storytelling in tabletop games has fallen off significantly in recent years. Yeah, and my approach to an RPG is hopefully a solution to that because there's not, um, it's entirely storytelling based. So mm-hmm. there is something really impossible to describe about the magic of cooperative storytelling yeah characters and a dungeon master a storyteller and they're all working together to to decide what happens um it's fun and i don't think there's any other medium that really does it as well as rpgs because um you either stop feeling it's either too much of a story and people lose like perspective on what they're trying to accomplish or it's too much of a game and they try to min max statistics and stats and they lose sight of like the whole point of telling a story okay i think i'm i, th- I think i'm kind of running out of uh steam ta- steam trying to think of talking points here so so i just want to i want to thank you again for coming on here i really appreciate it and you know your ser- your your series is an amazingly entertaining read and i can't wait for book three to come out on audiobook i appreciate hearing that i look forward to sharing book three with folks it's got a lot of uh well we keep building on the stuff that came before so um 
what people have been looking forward to getting, they're getting a lot of it in book three. Yep. Other than Audible, where can uh, where can people find your work? And well, I would say we're all good books are sold. Um, but on top of that, you know, it's it's traditionally published, so it's it's on Amazon, it's on Audible, it's it could be in your local bookstore, but most likely, if you're living in the U.S., it's not. Um, and it could be if you just ask your bookstore to uh, get it, and then they would stock it. Um, but it's uh, taken off more in the UK and Australia and some other places. And so if you live in one of those locations, then you might be able to go into your local Waterstones or something and, and find it on the bookshelf. But um, yeah, anywhere you like. Well, there you go. There you go. Harass your local book sh- bookseller. Yeah. They'll stop it. <laughs> they should. They better. Yeah. them. And if they <laughs> It, they can you can tell them to contact me and then I'll send them like uh, book pl- signed book plates they can stick in their books and I've done that numerous times for bookstores that have reached out to me oh okay well for anyone listening there you go go talk to your bookseller and you can get a signed book yeah and I and I stick invisible ink messages in all of my books that I sign and all of my book plates that I sign so and now that? somebody's and now there's gonna be somebody who met you at a con is Where's my book? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but. I hope so. Because <laughs> it would be a shame for them to have that book and never look at it with using a UV light. Yeah. 